1999 signaled a major oncoming shift for much of the way we think, live, and leisure. This decade concludes on such shaky ground, a final year filled with transitions, refreshes, and beginnings. In music, R&B was flirting with pop in an intriguing and integrating manner. Lisa Left Eye Lopez was always thinking big. Leaning more on the business side of the industry, she took the female trio Black under her wing. Now that's Black with a Q-U-E, not C-K. It's an acronym meaning believe, life, achieving, quest, unity, and everything. They debuted with an impressive sass soul hip-hop chill single, 808. But it was their second single, Bring It All To Me, with NSYNC's J.C. Chazez, that pointed to an intention to bridge with the omnipresent popularity of the white male pop singing groups of the time. Breaking boundaries in this way was not entirely standard yet, I would argue. It's the experiment that made it all the way to number four on Billboard's Hot 100, affirming that this kind of collaboration was good for exposure for Black artists and corporate pockets. Being a little bit pop and a little bit R&B seemed to be the name of the game for newer youthful acts like the Backstreet Boys, Destiny's Child, 98 Degrees, Christina Aguilera, Drew Hill's Solo Cisco, and so many more leading the parade into the new millennium. Where many of these lines are now so astronomically super blurred, many of the newer Black artists I was listening to in college couldn't possibly be contained by a genre when it came to their own musical expression. Sidebar. You can say Fiona Apple's album When the Pawn, even in its Carole King tapestry successor style, has its own flavor of folk soul that goes back to the very roots of rhythm and blues. And it bears repeating that the vibe we call neo-soul was another assured presence as a refresh encasing the Afrosonics from a time before Africans in America could even have access to an actual drum. Neo-soul put our roots in a blender and arranged it as a communal body of 21st century consciousness. The aptly named The Roots, although the essential hip-hop band, emphasis on band, this year released a critical darling single, You Got Me, off of their fourth album, Things Fall Apart, featuring smooth conversational rhymes from Tariq Black Thought Trotter, answered by Erica Badu's bluesy sung chorus, co-written and originally recorded with the following year's neo-soul star, Jill Scott. And even Rough Riders Eve added more of a feminine energy to this alt-rap love song about loyalty and reassurance. You Got Me moves the movement forward with a Grammy, so even more eyes were on the high potential of this building conglomerate of singers, poets, rappers, and instrumentalists, all under one groove of musicianship and Afrocentricity as a way of life, that piqued the interest of entities from Coca-Cola to The Gap. This was quite the shift from the uptown hip-hop soul that began to seem like a relic of the recent past at this point. Even Mary J. Blige's most popular number one single, Family Affair, in 2001, has likely had the most crossover appeal, even appearing in the film Undercover Brother with an awkward Chris Kattan dancing to it. Personally, with the classics always in my back pocket, I added the neo-soul and no-genre artists like Dwele and Jay Davey to my listening collection. There was something fun and exciting about the artists who straddled these ends of the Black musical spectrum for a period that is now interpreted as a seamless collision. This collision was just the beginning, which is now. This fully digital age playground where you can truly DIY it and find a massive audience. Your music that you produced with your creative freedom and variety of influences is one upload away from potentially reaching millions of people if you know how to use social media right. I see, and so many new artists who shine under the R&B lights right now, that are reflections of Joan Armatrading, Phoebe Snow, Cree Summer even, LaBelle, Adina Howard, Raphael Sadiq, Earth Wind Fire, Donny Hathaway, 
And those are just a few names that immediately strike my mind because of course I could go on forever. And that's the point. Robin and I, during this journey, are conversationally seeing the lineage, tradition, our musical heritage, and how it has evolved R&B as an expanse. A universe where the 1990s gave way to an even more exceptional freedom that truly defines the essence of the genre. If you were a broke guy sitting in the passenger side of your best friend's ride trying to holla at me, well, you might have been in your feelings in 1999 because TLC's hit single, No Scrubs, which served as a call out to Shiftless Deadbeats, was inescapable. Written by Escape members Candy Barris and Tamika Cotto, with an assist from Kevin Shakespeare Briggs, the song resonated with girls and women everywhere. It was a song with subject matter that had lineage going back decades as well. Y'all remember, in 1986, Gwen Guthrie's R&B hit, Ain't Nothing Going On But The Rent, where she proudly proclaimed, no romance without finance. And the line, you gotta have a J-O-B if you wanna get with me. In 1997, Erica Badu loosened her head wrap at a concert and freestyled an entire song about a deadbeat who don't never buy her nothing, asking him to call his homie Tyrone to get him up out of there. The audience erupted in shock and elation. In 1998, Lauren Hill warned of men who were more concerned with his rims and his Tims than his women. And in the same year, 1999, Destiny's Child asking guys if they could pay automobiles, telephone bills, and then make we could chill. No Scrubs, like the previous songs I mentioned, exist at the entangled intersections of feminism, economics, and gender politics. With No Scrubs, there's no metaphor here. This is a very direct response to the exhaustion many girls and women face on the daily with corny pickup lines, street harassment, or being with a man who can't really pull his weight financially, or simply not showing love to your woman. Looking at the song itself, it's gorgeous R&B pop at its finest, playful, upbeat, and teasing, definitely inspired production-wise by the space-age funk that Timbaland, Missy, and Aaliyah were churning out. In 1999, TLC as a group were still shuddering the storms of bankruptcy from a horrible contract, Left Eye's arson scandal, and potential disbandment. They were the biggest selling girl group at the time, and their previous album, the groundbreaking Crazy Sexy Cool, had sold millions of albums, putting them pretty much on top of the world, despite financial despair. They became a blueprint for contemporary girl groups. Their music has always been centered around the complexities of male-female relationships and social issues plaguing our inner and outer lives. No Scrubs only cemented their already iconic legacy. Led completely by group member Chili, it's to this day the biggest and most streamed song by them. Later in 1999, an answer song by the rap group The Sporty Thieves called No Pigeons would make its way to the airwaves. Definitely nowhere close to being as popular as No Scrubs, but answer songs have their own musical history as well. I remember No Scrubs being the song of heated debates, lots of so-called man-bashing arguments. I'd also like to say the folks most upset with this song were hanging out the passenger side of their, yeah, you get the picture. <laughs> I'm writer and professor Ashley B. 
I'm screenwriter and music enthusiast Robin Shanae, and this is Rhythm in School. Breaking down 90s R&B one year at a time. Episode 10, 1999, No Scrubs. Y'all remember that now iconic scene in the Black movie canon, Love and Basketball, where basketball player Monica, tormented over possibly losing the love of her life, Quincy, decides to challenge him to a one-on-one game to win his heart. As the game intensifies, we suddenly hear the oceanic, soulful vocals of Michelle and Cello singing Fool of Me. A song of such agonized personal grief and emotional humiliation, you can easily sink within yourself just listening. A song that won't let you come up for air until it's over. It was a perfect song to score a very particular cinematic moment when our heroine Monica, for a moment, felt all was lost. A year prior, in 1999, Fool of Me was recorded on the album Bitter the third album by the virtuoso recording artist Michelle Indigiacello, now hailed as a masterwork by many critics and her greatest artistic achievement. I haven't delved into alternative R&B as much as I wanted to on this podcast. We've had so much to explore with so little time. But when we discuss alternative R&B, or as I often call it, left-of-center R&B, yes, Neo Soul sometimes fits this description, but I'm speaking of R&B that leans into its folk, acoustic, jazz, and or alternative rock stylings. It's soulful, but often unquantifiable in terms of taking a more unique approach towards the genre. Bitter is even more profound as an artistic work towards the kind of soul music that only exists outside the box of the genre. Michelle's previous albums, Plantation Lullabies and Peace Beyond Passion, were dynamic experimental works of R&B, hip-hop, neo-soul, and rock, exploring not only the vastness of love and sex, but also societal issues from racism to homophobia. Yet Bitter is a wholly different work. It is a breakup album by definition, but it's not the breakup album that sounds like a person has had some distance from the ruin. No, this album is the ruin. It is immersed fully in anguish, grief, and abandonment. Michelle's strong vocals are most vulnerable here. The album is an excursion into the galaxy of despair. This could easily be the most depressing thing ever, but Michelle is so creative, so effective, so mesmerizing. Songs like Bitter, Faithful, and Beautiful are textured with such fragile vulnerability and yearning. And on the bass level, that is R&B at its most fundamental. All the greatest soul singers know how to express the dimensions of vulnerability and yearning with a gospelized style of passion. But here... Michelle is using a much starker landscape. Here, the emotions are much darker. The instrumentation more acoustic to only further illuminate her frailty. It's a work that in some ways defies categorization. Like Prince, Michelle blurs the boundaries of gender as much as she blurs the boundaries of genre. But when you hear her voice, the lineage of soul mothers like Aretha, Gladys, and Mavis are clear. And it's evident where Michelle is rooted. This is soul music at its most fluid, transformative, and all-encompassing.
the end of an era. The 90s has been called the last greatest decade, only by those obviously who were there and have now seen the ripple effect of events, both good and bad, that have had a significant influence on our global climate today. On April 20th, 1999, Eric Harris and Dylan Claybold walked into their high school with guns in Littleton, Colorado, and killed 13 people and wounded 20 others, then proceeded to kill themselves. The Columbine High School shooting shattered the nation. It was the worst high school shooting in United States history at the time. The two teens originally planned a bombing, investigators discovered, that could have potentially killed more people, but the bomb they left in the school failed to detonate. Many wanted something or someone to blame. From video games to Marilyn Manson, a discourse about bullying and the youth social caste system came under a microscope. It was a little unnerving attending an incredibly large high school with thousands of students from a massive variety of ethnic and cultural backgrounds. And it was common knowledge that a significant group of students weren't very accepting of that reality. One friend expressed being afraid to come to school the next day. We knew this wasn't some isolated incident. So many of us who were different stayed on alert. I even remember the zero tolerance policy and talks of the soon implemented shifts to standard uniform clothing for students. That happened after I graduated, thank goodness. More laws to transpire this year, including actor Dana Plato, most known for her role on Different Strokes, JFK Jr., the legendary singer-songwriter and composer Curtis Mayfield, and the prolific filmmaker Stanley Kubrick, responsible for some of the greatest films ever made, including 2001 A Space Odyssey, Full Metal Jacket, one of my favorites, and of course, the horror masterpiece, The Shining. Losses from the recent past were also celebrated. A moment I will never forget watching the 16th annual MTV Video Music Awards in 1999, Miss Valletta Wallace and Miss Afini Shakur came together on the Metropolitan Opera House stage with Mama by Boys to Men playing and Will Smith introducing the two as a prelude to the Best Rap Video Award. They stood as mothers who understood the impact their sons had on millions of people. Dedicated to preserving their legacies, it was one of the most beautiful moments ever witnessed on television. Record and VMA execs put it all together, but it did not stop the burst of the emotional bubble that the moment invoked. There was truly warmth between Miss Afini and Miss Valletta. And to ease the melancholy, one moment from the ceremony that eclipsed all others was when legend Diana Ross gently patted Lil' Kim's exposed breasts, only covered by a decorative pastry, to illuminate her look of choice on stage. Little Kim laughed and embraced it like any young Black person would do when an auntie made a loving gesture at your bold decisions. How does one express how culturally esoteric that moment was because I totally could have anticipated Miss Diana's nonverbal response? My reaction was one of delight because Lord knows as a Black girl, I've had those kind of moments with my elders. But let's shift and circle back to another unsettling story. Beatle member George Harrison was attacked by a schizophrenic man who broke into his home early one morning and stabbed him over 40 times. George and his wife had to fight the man down, and it was discovered by investigators that his mental illness led him to believe that killing Harrison was a mission from God. Luckily, George survived the attack, but his son, Donnie, remembers that it did take a toll on him, while also with his father's Buddhist faith gave him the strength to persevere. In film, the biggest movies of the year were The Sixth Sense, which everyone, that just, it just, that, everyone threw their wig at that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Toy Story, 
Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me, The Matrix, Tarzan, and the much-anticipated Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. On May 19, 1999, when The Phantom Menace was released into theaters, an estimated 2.2 million full-time employees missed work to go see it in theaters, costing the United States an estimated $293 million from loss of productivity. But the unexpected juggernaut was probably the Blair Witch Project, directed by Daniel Myrick and Eduardo Sanchez, which put found footage horror on the radar as a potentially highly profitable subgenre. I mean, a $60,000 budget that returned $248.6 million makes it the perfect case study. A film about three film students making a documentary about a paranormal urban legend in rural Maryland who disappear was marketed as a real event and we have the footage totally worked. 1999 was perfect timing for a film like this with its lo-fi aesthetics as a standard for reality television like cops and the real world and internet message boards to spread information about the sensational topics and phenomena. Was the film scary for the time? Yes. In retrospect, that's debatable. The appeal that the story was real is what spooked me the most. Now, I have to say, my pre-Blair Witch fave is 1998's The Last Broadcast, which is a film I found legitimately frightening. But hats off to Blair Witch, giving green light ease to its followers like Cloverfield, Grave Encounters, Lake Mungo, Paranormal Activity, of course, and countless other takes and spoofs. Now, on television, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire made its game show debut and captured a nationwide audience with Regis Philbin leading the charge as its host. A teacher from my high school actually made it to the stage, but her fingers weren't fast enough to make it to the hot seat. One moment from the show that burns me to this day is a $500,000 question that asked, what was the name of Reagan's friend that she communicated with on the Ouija board in The Exorcist? And the person didn't know it. It's Captain Howdy, and I could have paid for my college education with that money. (laughs) Another lasting impact program in TV land that premiered this year is the utterly relentless endurance of the crime drama Law & Order Special Victims Unit. This NBC series created by Dick Wolf had a solid start with an earnest stride fueled by the ensemble cast, I would argue, but its staying power is all thanks to stars Mariska Hargitay and Christopher Maloney, who fuel audience desire for justice and, good lord, help us all, romance. (laughs) Those two should never be a fictional couple, ever. Another big moment in TV from this year, one of my favorites, was Susan Lucci, who finally won her first Daytime Emmy Award after 19 nominations. Now, I was a huge All My Children head, so I will never forget when Shamar Moore announcing the win with, the streak is over, Susan Lucci. I think Susan even got a standing ovation, and she deserved that. And there was yet another major headline, basketball legend and champ Michael Jordan announcing his retirement from the NBA after dominating both the game and the league. Y2K. The ominous shorthand for the year 2000 referenced a potential computer coding disaster if our machines interpreted the change of 1231.99 to 1100 as 1900. Calculations and infrastructures in all facets of life could cause disaster. President Clinton ensured government inquiry into this matter beginning in 1998 to avoid any sort of collapse. Combined with large corporation research and prevention, costs made it to the tune of $100 billion, 
where computer programmers ultimately fix the issues seemingly with little gratitude. Unfortunately, misunderstanding was bountiful as people stocked up on food, supplies, and guns, wary of a millennial apocalypse. And pop culture references like the satirical Family Guy episode on it either mocked or fueled this mass worry, depending on how you looked at it. (laughs) I was with my good friend Chris and his boyfriend in his basement on December 31st, 1999. When the clock struck midnight, we did the traditional celebratory thing, but we also had to know. So we tuned into the local news to find out that the sky did not fall. And Chris laughed at the complete non-issue Y2K turned out to be. (laughs) Wow, this is another year where so much was happening. And yes, I'll start with the madness that was Y2K. So many folks were terrified. I was in college and I just remember all these professors and students having these various conversations about it. Some people were terrified. Others were not buying into the hype. I don't think I was afraid. I don't think I was buying into the hype either. It was wild, though, because churches were packed that New Year's Eve night. (laughs) I chilled at home with my mom and some friends and watched Gwen Stefani with No Doubt sing It's the End of the World as We Know It on MTV's New Year's Eve party. And thank you, Ashley, for mentioning the moment Valetta Wallace and Afini Shakur stood on that stage together. It was such a powerful moment still seared into my brain. On a lighter note, The Sixth Sense just blew me away. I remember the audible gasp from the audience in that packed theater when I saw the movie. An iconic plot twist and a really compelling horror film. And it feels like a lot of current horror filmmakers are still very much inspired by that film. And of course, the Blair Witch Project phenomenon, which spawned what feels like infinite found footage films. And yes, Susan Lucci finally winning an (laughs) Emmy was the only time I said, okay, maybe the world is coming to an end because Lord knows that woman was long overdue for a win. I said something similar. And now for the top 20 R&B singles of 1999, according to Playback FM. Say My Name by Destiny's Child. See y'all in the deep dive segment where I get to discuss how much I love this song and how significant it is to pop music. No Scrubs by TLC. Bills, Bills, Bills by Destiny's Child. Heartbreak Hotel by Whitney Houston. Absolutely love discussing this song in the previous episode. I really did. Heartbreaker by Mariah Carey. I really love the remix with Missy and DeBrat. You Know What's Up by Donnell Jones. Satisfy You by Puff Daddy featuring R. Kelly. Thank God I Found You by Mariah Carey. Another Mariah joint with a superior remix. That Make It Last Forever sample just took the song to another level. Fortunate by Maxwell. What's It Gonna Be by Busted Rhymes featuring Janet Jackson. Angel of Mine by Monica. Have You Ever by Brandy, My Love Is Your Love by Whitney Houston, Get It On Tonight by Montel Jordan. This is such a jam, a really, really dope party song. Where My Girl's At by 702, Tell Me It's Real by Casey and Jojo, Wild Wild West by Will Smith, I Try by Macy Gray, We Can't Be Friends by Deborah Cox and R.L., This was a fantastic duet song. I love the lyrics. And finally, rounding out the 20, we have Shantae's Got a Man by Shantae Moore. 
And when we talk about cold-blooded R&B songs, we got to mention this one. Shantae really said she doesn't care what your man is doing to you. She got a good man at home. This might even be her biggest hit. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really glad that No Scrubs was mentioned earlier because it really did need a layered opinion, articulated because of what it did culturally. I honestly feel the cultural conversation it started surpasses the song itself. Then Bills, Bills, Bills is a song I find myself singing along to whenever I hear it. It's incredibly catchy. It's not much of a replay song of mine, but I do appreciate it. We Can't Be Friends is one of my favorite duets of all time. I love the crescendo of that song. You, The emotion of it mm-hmm. always makes the hair on my body stand on end. And Get It On Tonight reminds us that there is no shortage of (laughs) raggedy cheating songs, and this serenade is no different. Just whimsically picking up another woman because my baby's stressing me. Boy, bye. (laughs) Like, does anyone want to communicate anymore? But the song is dope sonically, so. Right? (laughs) (laughs) And you know what? I never thought Shantae's Got a Man was so shady. We all know women don't keep authentic friends around talking that crazy. The song has become kind of a running gag for various reasons, but most notably, this one. The 42nd Annual Grammy Awards were held on February 23, 2000 to celebrate music from 1999. The nominees for Best Rhythm and Blues Song of 1999 are It's Not Right But It's Okay by Whitney Houston, No Scrubs by TLC, Heartbreak Hotel by Whitney Houston featuring Kelly Price and Faith Evans, Bills, Bills, Bills by Destiny's Child, and All That I Can Say by Mary J. Blige featuring Lauren Hill. And the winner is No Scrubs by TLC. Again, the biggest song of the year won in regards to popularity and reach, but the quality was extremely high across the board for all. My favorite is All That I Can Say, personally. Nice. And yeah, this is another one where I would have been happy with any one of these songs winning. Really dope seeing this category filled with women. No Scrubs was huge and deserving. Doing the Impossible, this is where we choose just a few of our favorite tracks from the year. So for my first track, I chose Say My Name by Destiny's Child. This single from their second album, The Writings on the Wall, is the album's biggest hit and became their biggest hit as a group and still their most streamed single to this day. I thought I'd ruminate as to why that is the case, especially since I love the song so much. Produced by the brilliant Rodney Jerkins, who was just starting to make a name for himself as a go-to producer who had the ability to cook up conceptually amazing R&B songs. I have to underline conceptual because that's what really resonates on this particular song and why so many artists flocked to Jerkins, especially after this single dropped. Ashley and I have spoken extensively on the vast ways R&B explores its primary theme, love and relationships. Finding new ways to explore this topic with infectious choruses and memorable lyrics is no small feat. 
Say my name conceptually is very relatable. A woman is on the phone with her man who suddenly seems to be acting a little different. Different enough for this woman to suspect that another woman must be with him and to halt any trace of suspicion, the woman asks her man to say her name. This song explores that gnawing feeling that something is off in a relationship, the subtle and sometimes jarring changes in your partner, which can cause paranoia. You almost forget this song is about betrayal because the production is such a groove. And you can't forget Beyonce's amazing lead vocals. Such a distinctive voice, but her delivery, her sing rap style she first birthed with the No 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 remix, which would eventually become a go-to for her and other artists. Listeners mostly have forgotten that this was a really, really different way to approach singing. And it was so new at the time. She is singing her lines with a rapper's cadence and delivery. If you were around in 1999, then you remember the scandal around the video. Out of nowhere, members Latoya Luckett and Latavia Robertson were instantly replaced with Michelle Williams and Farrah Franklin. Rumor mills spun, gossip churned endlessly, and briefly damaged Beyonce's image. Eventually, Beyonce repaired her image and the group continued forward as a trio with Michelle Williams and their success continued. Say My Name is a fantastic single. I love the texture of all the vocals and the arrangement, the dope production, and the relatable paranoia of relationship status uncertainty. I literally experienced this song during my first or second year of college, but that's another story for another time. (laughs) Oh, no. I do want to mention, I'm so glad you brought up the sing rap style. That's so interesting because, yeah, maybe it kind of started brewing around this time and Beyonce was kind of a catalyst for what we see today in what is considered R&B. Mm-hmm. And I too relate to the feeling of being in a relationship and something feeling off. The Timbaland remix of this song holds something special too. It's the same concept with the flair of Tim and Static Major, more down-tempo though than the original and would be a great versus conversation when you listen to both back and back. Like back to back, I mean. Like so they're really I love they're, that. They're remix. both great songs, but that remix, <laughs> Yes, no, you're right. The remix is really dope. Yeah. So I'm sure my look of confusion was also priceless <laughs> when I first saw the video. Cause I'm young. So I'm just like, I have that. It's like that meme where that black girl, she kind of is just like looking into the void with her mouth open and her eyes are big. But again, that's a whole other conversation we don't have time for. (laughs) My next pick is No More Rain in This Cloud by Angie Stone. I'm so excited to talk to y'all about Angie Stone. For those who don't know, Angie Stone started as a rapper, a member of the hip-hop trio The Sequence in the late 70s. In the early 90s, she was a member of the alt-R&B group Vertical Hold, Shout out to the song, Seems You're Much Too Busy, because I didn't get a chance to discuss it on the podcast, but it's a great song. But Angie Stone, as we know her today, broke through officially with this song, No More Rain, off her dazzling album, Black Diamond. The song beautifully samples Gladys Knight's Neither One of Us Wants to Be the First to Say Goodbye. A perfect sample based on the criteria of the single, where Angie is officially all cried out over relationship and now she can see the sunshine. Truly love the lyrics and Angie's vocals here are strong yet restrained and so soulful, reminiscent of 60s and 70s soul. Angie is another artist who found huge success in the neo-soul movement, 
But on this particular song, it feels more like retro soul, a homage paying throwback to a vintage classic aesthetic. The song is about letting go of the pain of heartbreak. She lets this man know she's done with crying. She's moving forward. The theme is finding yourself after love is lost, reclaiming your personal season and self-worth. Your tears or the rain is finally gone and you can see the light again. Such a beautiful message. That vertical hold song is so early <laughs> 90s, but it's so, it's very great though. It's fantastic. It doesn't get talked about enough. It really doesn't. But you said retro soul and that felt like another branch on the neo soul tree maybe. So mm-hmm. I think of artists like Leela James as well come to mind. I also really like Angie Stone in this song a lot. Probably my favorite is More Than a Woman with Calvin Richardson, though. Ooh, I love that song. My next selection, If You Love Me by Mint Condition. Mint Condition are just so underrated. Here you have a band straight out of Minneapolis that can play music in a vast array of genres. New Jack Swing, R&B, funk, and hip-hop. Wanting to be taken seriously as an up-tempo funk band, as mentioned in their Unsung episode, but it's these romantic soul ballads are where they make the most memorable and amazing music and soar on the charts. Some of the most gorgeous R&B songs of the 90s are songs by Mint Condition, led by Stokely Williams, whose vocals are as distinct as they are marvelous. If You Love Me is an enticing soul ballad about the yearning for unconditional love. This song is written by band member Carrie Lewis, the now ex-hubby of Tony Braxton. Side note, he wrote a lot of great songs for the band. But this song is about emotional insecurity in a relationship. The song is a man asking his romantic partner to show him in action how much she loves him. It's that classic, don't just tell me, love is an action word. Stokely Williams sings with his signature vulnerability. You can feel the ache, the longing, and even the grief-like uncertainty he's expressing. Seriously, he's giving a really astonishing vocal performance on this song. And the range, whew. This is just another brilliantly composed song by Mint Condition, and I had to mention it here. I agree. Mint Condition and this song scored more on the adult contemporary radio around here rather than drawing listenership and mass from a younger market. So that's where I was hearing If You Love Me, probably because the Pretty Brown Eyes crowd was a little older. There's even an aura of maturity to the song that I find appealing. Mint Condition, to me, has the ability to put their 100% in everything they do, so the emotion is genuine, and as a listener, it feels good listening to them. Ooh, I love that. Such a fantastic observation. My next pick, Fortunate by Maxwell. So remember when I said in a previous episode, Babyface's superpower was understanding the persona of an artist and being able to write from that place? Well, at times, R. Kelly had this ability too, because he wrote a truly dazzling song for Maxwell that sounds like something Maxwell would have written for himself. This song appears on the Life soundtrack, which R. Kelly executive produced. It's also one of Maxwell's biggest songs to date. It's true to its roots, Maxwell singing about the pure adoration he feels for a woman in his life. The chorus is so freaking infectious. Maxwell takes us to church here with his dynamic vocal range, from his dreamy falsetto to his baritone. 
truly in the spirit of Prince here evoking that same holy devotion to the female sex. It's a lush, immersive song where Maxwell just drowns us in his cosmic soul. And y'all, those ad-libs, truly a masterclass right here. Every time that beat drops on this song, it's like the first <laughs> time I've ever heard it. It's yes. I can listen to this song over and over and over and over again. I don't think I will ever get enough of Fortunate. It feels so authentically Maxwell. This is my favorite single from this year, probably. Nice, nice. Finally, Faded Pictures by Case and Joe. This single appears on the Rush Hour soundtrack. And I gotta say, I love a great R&B duet. Case and Joe are perfectly matched here as two men trying to grasp a woman haunted by her past. As a writer myself, I become just as obsessed with the lyrics of a song as the vocals and production. There is such bold visual imagery here. Faded pictures, broken glass, tattered picture books. The song is a mid-tempo groove, but the content is somber and expressed in such a dynamic and poetic way. Here we have a man, both Case and Joe, who are in conversation here who is with a woman who is very much lost in the past. The lyric of her staring into a glass, it's really powerful stuff here. This man is competing with a woman's past, her past lover. He is competing with her memories, and now he is feeling the sharpening pain of not being who she really wants to be with. Like, the anguish of coming to this conclusion is heartbreaking. Honestly, I don't think this song is given enough credit on a songwriting tip. It's quite profound. This is such a great observation. Faded Pictures has a way of feeling soothing and melancholy all at the same time, which even to me sounds odd, but I think it has a lot to do with the production. Mm -hmm. I truly appreciate the depth this song takes on with two singers who, of course, can effortlessly belt the range of a ballad. I can't find much sadness and the bulk of my other favorite singles from 1999, however, quite like you have. <laughs> There's songs on my list like Third Story, Party Tonight. In this next gathering of successful R&B groups from the 90s harvest is Third Story. Their second single, Party Tonight, seemed to have come and gone unceremoniously due to an unreleased debut album. But Party Tonight is an infectiously harmonic, feel-good song that is exactly what the title implies. Produced by Too Close Nexus RL and featuring bars by Tretch from Naughty by Nature, Party Tonight boasts two leads from the youth quartet JR and Lil Man, now known as K Young, with this kind of R&Pop vocals about a house party with the promise of a little baby face and John B on the speakers for good high-energy balance. It's the kind of track you can safely play at any school dance with a delicate balance of teen rebellion edge and innocent fun sensibility. At their peak, Third Story managed to score tour dates with Britney Spears and NSYNC. They've had to navigate multiple record labels, member changes, and even a change in the name branding. Now known as Chapter 4, Third Story has all the ability and talent to be on the family tree of male R&B groups. We certainly won't leave this decade without drawing some conclusions about this bubble that was just about to burst. One of the things I've loved most about this podcast is being able to shine a light on more obscure acts and artists. I didn't really remember this group until I watched the video to prepare for the podcast. This is such a fun song and definitely a cute house party jam for the youngsters. I'm so glad you mentioned them. 
Yeah, it was on one of my like burnt CD compilation <laughs> when we used to use Napster and like yes. grab, <laughs> grab everything you can. So it was on one of my CDs of this, like a, a, a mix of like songs or whatever. I think another one of those songs that was on one of those mix CDs was Coco, her song Sunshine, which is a solo song that she did. And it all began with producer Rodney Jerkins. This is SWV's Coco, who came to visit him while he was renting Whitney Houston's guest home to brainstorm ideas for her solo project. Now, Coco wanted to honor her son, born Jazz Ishmael Butler, and now known as Gen Z's own SoundCloud rap force Lil Tracy, and his bright presence in her life. And she's still proud of how far he's come. You should check out Coco's Instagram account, where she's filming Lil Tracy perform for a lot of his little adoring fans. But I digress. This song is beautiful. It's a beautiful presentation of what Coco does with pure uplift music that only previews her work with gospel as a solo artist as well. It has that dark child flair as the powerhouse team of Jerkins, his brother Fred, and LaShawn Daniels working again to make an incredibly great song. Yes, this is such a great song. So sunny and so breezy. I love it. Coco's vocals are just gorgeous here, per usual. Yep. And speaking of uplift music, Yolanda Adams and her single, Open My Heart. Now, this is just my own idiosyncrasy, so forgive me, folks out there. But I never had a particular emotional connection to gospel music, especially the up-tempo choir fair. For me, it's more bombastic, public, and impersonal, and that has never been my approach to spirituality. But when I heard preachers discuss developing a personal relationship with God, things began to make more sense for me. And that's what Open My Heart is. It's a solo prayer that opens with, alone in a room, it's just me and you. Yolanda invites a different kind of vulnerability to this moment, those really tough times of feeling lost and unsure if you'll make the right decision, and the fear of not doing so. The plea is for guidance on those days when emotions run high and hope is valley low. For many, God is the Father, the head of both reason and comfort. Her call is a calm, with her beautiful voice certainly being a beacon that music lovers can rest on. I cannot express how grateful I am that this song exists. In my darkest times, I've sang this with fervor alone in my apartment to find purpose in my existence. This is definitely the blues interwoven with the rhythm, gospel at its core, but it's a full circle of what we know as R&B. Gospel-centric songs being played on mainstream R&B radio has a very complicated history. As I mentioned in a previous episode, Kurt Franklin breaking through to R&B radio and MTV wasn't seen as a good thing to many conservative Christians who want their sacred and secular not crossing any lines. Artists like Kirk, The Winans, BB and Cece, and even back in the day with Oh Happy Day by the Edwin Hawkins singers being played on R&B radio have always garnered skepticism. Towing the line between gospel and R&B. And people can feel how they want to feel, but personally, I love songs like this. I love that they can reach a wider audience. I love this song because it is so much about that personal relationship with God, as you mentioned, Ashley. It's a song that has helped me through some super difficult times. And maybe Sister Act 2 has something to do with this during the period as well. Ooh, excellent it, observation. It just, all that just became intertwined. Everyone was wanted to be on that stage with Lauren Hill and Jennifer Love Hewitt. 
Yes. And some other interesting shifts. This is why 1999 is such an interesting year. You had other acts from this kind of neo-soul umbrella like Emil LaRue and her first single, Get Up. This soulful, smooth jazz, mid-tempo, neo-soul, underrated classic was released at the coming conclusion of the decade, setting the stage for Emil's debut solo effort, Infinite Possibilities, in February 2000. Post Groove Theory and the 1996 vibe of a track, You Will Rise, for the band Sweet Back, Emil, I'm guessing, was yearning for personal artistic expression that matches with her purpose and personality, and Get Up works with her consistent discography themes here. She's critiquing capitalism. But even though nine to fives can get us down, we can always get up as she questions. A consistent collaborator with her husband, Emil also sharing a co-writing and producing credit with him, Get Up as a premiere brings out Emil's mellow vocal range even more with direct lyrical consciousness wrapped in the tradition of scatting. As the neo-soul movement was gaining more of a presence in the mainstream, Emil arguably was a more grounded presence. Even though Get Up only peaked at 97 on Billboard's Hot 100 and is her only charting song as a solo artist, which is a crime, there's a fervent fan base that bumps her body of work on a regular. This includes me. Really check out her body of work. It's fantastic. Also, sidebar, fun fact, The Roots' Questlove took Emil LaRue to his prom at Philadelphia's answer to LaGuardia High School, whom some call the fame school. Ooh, that's <laughs> a great fun fact. And <laughs> yes, I love this song. I love the mellow jazz vibe and her vocals on this. It's a song I played a lot to help me get my day started. She's such an underrated artist and her Infinite Possibilities album is excellent. I love the Neo Soul movement for its vast range of like, you know, the forerunners, the people who like branched out mm-hmm. in popularity, but then you had these other people who are still working artists to this day, but like their stuff is just as good, if arguably arguably not better than the more popular people that people know. That's such a great observation. I mean, yeah, because this whole album is like the chill, radiant, and fly misfit album. That's what you got to listen. That's, mm-hmm. that's what I love about Emil. And we're bringing it full circle, I should say, to my fifth choice. It's going to be the plethora of honorable mentions because one, there is more than ever. And two, to avoid rehashing similar conversations we've had before. You've heard ourselves pitches, folks. Now just take our words for it. <laughs> like Whitney Houston's It's Not Right, But It's Okay. Let me just say Robin did that when she discussed this era. Whitney, I cannot top that. And 1999 R&B songstresses were certainly fed all the way up with the raggedy (laughs) section of the opposite sex and this song along with the music video encapsulates this so perfectly first of all let me just lol at the raggedy section of the opposite sex (laughs) hey why is that so funny all right yes this song is so in line with this moment of black women who were having an r&b like tlc with no scrubs we were calling out the nonsense What I love most about this song is that Whitney showed us that she was a genius of mathematics. Y'all know the lyrics. If six of y'all went out, then four of you are really cheap because only two of you had dinner. I found your credit card receipt. (laughs) You can't argue with the math. (laughs) I wonder if math teachers have applied this as a lesson to get struggling students interested or at least to pass the subject. This 
if I had something like this in my math class, maybe I would have done better in the subject. Right. I also really loved songs like Get Involved by Raphael Sadiq featuring Q-Tip. This is the hip-hop spiced side of the dawning of the neo-soul movement. Sadiq is truly irresistible singing about bringing a little happiness into a dark-skinned girl or pretty cornrows' life. I love the video, too. It's so cute. <laughs> Case, Happily Ever After. And then They're So Anxious by Genuine, where Timbaland, Static, and the Super Friends do it again. Still in his Don Juan bag, Genuine croons an incredibly sexy song that makes you feel like you're the only woman in the world, and he's talking about you. If that's your thing, of course. You Know What's Up by Donnell Jones featuring Left Eye. Can I say that Left Eye makes this song? She does not get enough credit for her lyricism. She is the godmother to rappers like Jean Grey and Rhapsody with her wordplay. This is one of the best features ever. Donnell Jones is doing the typical lover boy stylings that are fine and catchy. But balancing this heteronormative masculinity is so refreshing. Yes, Left Eye's verse on this track is amazing. And it truly makes the song for me too. And you're so right. She doesn't get enough credit as a lyricist. This was one of those songs that would randomly get stuck in my head because it's such an infectious groove. Mm -hmm. I love it. It's that that LaFace effect, man. (laughs) That's all it is. Also, I love songs like All On My Grill by Missy Elliott. Almost Doesn't Count by Brandy. This song by Brandy, I love the layers of the lyrics and the way Brandy delivers them with such earnest sincerity. She's talking about no more half-assed love. And what this song kind of implies is such a, it, it's, it implies it in such a shady and dignified manner <laughs> with guitars and mellowness accompanying it. I really like that. There's Everything is Everything by Lauren Hill. More powerful than two Cleopatras. You don't, I mean, come on. <laughs> what are you going to do with that? <laughs> Here's Lauren continuing her imprint of infectious and uplifting music. These philosophical points about life's journey is everything Robin mentioned in our previous episode and so much more. We got to bring it back from a time past in the decade with Shanice's new single, When I Close My Eyes. From the self-titled fourth album by the once teenager who sung about loving a smile earlier in the decade, came back around with a few more years of perspective to polish our eardrums to conclude the decade. Now with LaFace Records, it seemed that Shanice was given the perfect platform to publicly transition for fans. To see the then 26-year-old giving listeners a body of work with that babyface-like grown folk contemporary R&B vibe he was most known for. The first single, When I Close My Eyes, is a soft head bouncer with balladry, love song lyrics, went from the 91st position on Billboard to the top 20, one of the biggest one-week moves in Billboard chart history on April 3rd, 1999. This year did not go out without an abundance. School is in session. So with our legacy segment, we just want to have longer discussions regarding artists, careers, albums, moments, and movements in the 90s, trying to add nuance and to contextualize music history for y'all. Because this music history is massive, and we can't dismiss it. Let's embrace it and all the complexities that come with it. 
The 90s is the last decade for the endless, vast array of R&B groups, male and female. Just think about everything you've heard on our podcast. The overwhelming ocean of male R&B groups from boys to men, Jodeci, Silk, to one-hit wonders galore like UNV, Low Key, and Portrait. The endless sea of girl groups, TLC, En Vogue, SWV, Total, to name a few. It was such a gloriously fruitful time to be in an R&B group, but that changed. And I'm not saying that a sprinkling of R&B groups didn't emerge or continue into the 2000s, B2K, Destiny's Child, 3LW, to name a few, but that's just it. It was just a sprinkle. By the 2010s, that sprinkle was basically non-existent. And today, in 2023, R&B groups have totally faded from charts, and in popularity. One of the many reasons the 90s became such a beloved era of R&B music, I believe, is that among so many other things, like how many subgenres were birthed in this decade, it was also the last time we really experienced one of R&B's most crucial ingredients, male and female singing groups. Without R&B groups, the genre itself is missing one of its most significant ingredients, which is harmony. That collective vocal harmonizing, styling, and performing has a rich history in the genre's evolution. Male and female vocal groups have always been key, essential as drinking water to Black music since the early days. From gospel quartet singing to doo-wop to Motown to Stax to Philly Soul to the disco funk era bands to the pop-fused synth funk 80s and, of course, the heavily abundant 90s. And just for evidence-based purposes, the last time an R&B group topped the R&B charts was in 2001, and it was Jagged Edge with Where's the Party At? By 2012, the Grammys removed the R&B duo or group award. Yeah, that's basically proof of extinction. So what happened? How did we get to this place? Why did the end of the 90s mark the beginning of such a jarring radical shift? Well, this has been a subject of debate for lots of R&B music listeners and scholars for years because honestly, there are a multitude of reasons. One reason suggested is the dominance of hip hop. Ashley and I have covered the unhealthy codependency hip hop and R&B were having in the 90s. It's one thing to collaborate, it's quite another to cause an identity crisis. R&B definitely experienced one and hey, I think it's still in crisis today when we look at the mainstream. Hip-hop transformed and reframed everything. The popularity of R&B, which focused primarily on singing about the vast emotions around love, suddenly needed to be, quote-unquote, hard to compete with rappers. Why are R&B artists even competing with rappers in the first place? R&B artists were no longer even distinct from rappers. Like my boys to men example from the last episode, you had to have hip-hop swagger to even get paid attention to. And it got to a point where you needed a rap feature to chart on radio. Being just R&B was no longer enough. On the flip side, neo-soul was still extremely popular well into the 2000s, but that subgenre produced mostly solo stars. Also, the desire for actual singing changed by the 2000s. When auto-tune started to become popularized, there was less desire for harmonized singing. Distinct vocal dynamics took a backseat as well. Not only affecting the gospel-inspired, soulful singing R&B is known for, but also helping to push groups out of the picture. 
The business side suggests digital piracy shuttered the record industry, something it never fully bounced back from. The cost of maintaining a group became financially untenable in a plethora of ways. And let's be real, there is the human factor. Group dynamics have always been messy. There's always someone marketed as the lead, which often causes eventual tensions and frictions within the group dynamic. And this has been happening since the very beginning. The lead singer eventually will leave to have a solo career. Group dynamic infighting with everything from money to who sings what to who owns what to people honestly just tired of each other, clashing with each other. The group problem, as I said, is not new. From the Temptations to the Supremes to the Spinners to New Edition to Boys to Men to Escape, people be peopling. (laughs) And finally, the rise of the boy band, something that isn't discussed as much. But I definitely believe the rise of the boy band craze had a major effect on R&B singing groups, especially R&B male groups. I have never liked the term boy band. These boys weren't in a band, playing instruments, which is part of my frustration. These were mostly white male pop singing groups who Xeroxed the blueprint of New Edition, Boys to Men, etc. These white pop acts had massive success and crushed any hope of Black R&B groups re-emerging. These so-called boy bands, Backstreet Boys, NSYNC, 98 Degrees, sang pop songs with vocalized harmonizing similar to R&B groups who suddenly became out of fashion? I won't dig deeper because we know the story. We know the Elvis of it all. We know there are nuances. And no, I'm not saying there weren't bops and jams. I'm not calling anyone a villain. But can we look at the visual geography of what happened and just be honest? So yeah, this adoration so many of us have for 90s R&B has a lot to do with how much we miss 90s R&B groups. 90s R&B groups are even reuniting these days to sold out tours because we want that old thing back. And yes, I know times change and evolve, but this loss of singing groups continues to be an unfillable void and R&B will always feel incomplete without them. Wow. Yes. That was a fantastic way of concluding what has been a huge part of the decade and ushering us into the 21st century. Your analysis sparked a few observations for me. Like what you said about needing a rap feature to even be on radio made me think of SWV's third album, Really Some Tension. So I'm like 15, 16 when this album came out. And what I noticed the most, which is why like half of the album for me bombed, was because it was slammed with mostly rap features. It's almost as if SWV were somewhat of a casualty to this trend. I forgot who said it, and maybe it was on their Unsung episode, something about that album should have been titled or called Sisters with Rappers, and even Coco said there were tracks she didn't even want to or refuse to sing on because of this. And the take on the solo stars from the neo-soul movement is so spot on, too. I remember female duos like Aries or the Jazzy Fat Nasties were so astronomically obscure and it seems you really had to be a Philly local or immersed in the culture of the movement to even have any idea of who these women were. You heard them do chorus or background vocals on tracks by The Roots or Music Soul Child and likely had no idea who they were. And what's sad is that off the top of my head, I can only think of those two. Robin and I have discussed for a long time now a healthy lapse in the knowledge of the intricate through lines music travels in and out of constantly. 
It is an ever-moving history that clusters and knots with endless influence, imitation, and artists crafting their own style that's going to find a way to stand separate while being completely tethered. We see this lapse on a daily basis on social media, and it's sad because these acts dangerously and likely unintentionally can get buried deeper into an abyss of the forgotten as a part of what has made room for ownership of self-expression through sound and image. It starts from the very beginning of what we now know as music. And contemporary pioneers I saw as a teen certainly made weird cool for the crop of melanated youths that have sprouted since. And Khalees is a part of that lineage. So let me, as I do, take you back to what it was being a teenager in 1999. Now, I had yet to feel the singe of a lover's deception. Now, that would come quite a while later. But there was a force, pun intended, brewing inside of me that felt the palpable energy of this caramel-colored, bush-blonde curls dipped in hot pink, young punk who was both singing effortlessly and screaming with impressive sophistication in a music video about a dude who really done effed up. (laughs) This was her introduction to the world, completely unabashed, which is exactly how I appreciate a good artist. Born Khalees Rogers growing up in Harlem, New York City, at just 20 years old, Khalees had a top-tier breakup anthem under her belt that, even if it wasn't your cup of tea, you couldn't help but notice. There's something about her album Kaleidoscope that, and this may sound corny, truly feels like you're taking a tunnel of love ride, but the tunnel is actually outer space and your swan boat is this pimped out, multicolored, paisley coated UFO. From previous discussions about what the future and the now of what R&B looks like, Neptune's producers Chad Hugo and Pharrell Williams simply joined the marathon on December 7th, 1999, most momentously with Kaleidoscope. It was never quite an R&B album, and Khalees was never confident with the sole R&B label for herself, but you can't deny its subtle influences. It was a mix of a little bit of everything, including hip-hop, funk, smooth jazz, and experimental 70s acid soul from the past while being aggressively forward. Chad and Pharrell had been producing music for themselves and others since about 1991 for folks like Mary J. Blige, Blackstreet, SWV, Jay-Z, and Mace. But Khalees' debut was their first full project for another artist. The duo took what was already out there in regards to Timbaland and Rodney Jerkins and leveled up to galaxies even farther away with their own drum and bass motif that depended on simultaneously ascendant, haunting, otherworldly, and melancholy melodies, accentuated by more original beeps and blips that truly were cohesions that I don't think we heard prior. Each track is its own story. Her songs are about any aspect of love, relationships, and uplift, and they have this kind of bombastic cinematic quality. Some, like her Bust the Door Down as a Lover Scorn debut single called Out There, was so fittingly a catharsis amidst the Clinton Lewinsky scandal as conversations like those on The View considered the possible feelings Hillary Clinton herself may have harbored. My favorite track, Mafia, featuring rapper Marquis, about undying loyalty in the face of legal adversity, sealed with Corleone kisses. Good Stuff, featuring Pusha T, asserting that she's the one for a ladies' man because of her extraordinary aura. And the gothic Get Along With You lends itself to her vulnerable standards, choosing peace and connection over material possessions. Suspension is another great track that arranges space metaphors with the good way love can make us feel. 
And think of her track Ghetto Children as a B-side to Lauren Hill's doo-wop that thing that lends an extra mile to encouragement over critique. The thread woven to gel this body of work into a space ride fueled with eccentricity is that psychedelic star funk Neptune's production that arguably sealed their mainstay and their in-demand status as music producers. The entire album is, again, one where there isn't a weak track to be found. Kalisa's raspy tune has a vibrant quality that harkens back to the most unsung of female funk singers of the past. To me, she's a glimmer of multi-threat Marsha Hunt, who horror fans may have seen as a werewolf in the Howling sequel, and deep history music heads know the bassy-voiced hippie singer who put all genres together in a blender on all three of her albums from the 1970s, during which she gave birth to and was raising Rolling Stones frontman Mick Jagger's daughter, Karis. Kaleidoscope made a few waves in the U.S., reaching 144 on Billboard's 200, far from a runaway success, but undoubtedly a blueprint for more successful and embraced artists in the U.S. that have followed Kalisa's template. Unsurprisingly, the album went gold in the U.K., as audiences there have been known to crave out-of-the-box sound to personas on their Black artists a little bit more, generally speaking. Kalis is not the kind of artist who fawns on her work or dwells in the past unless she has a strong conviction to rehash the wrongs of the business and personal matters. Which is a great reminder that art is about how we as consumers see and feel its value in our own lives. She's now producing music on her own terms while balancing motherhood, a farm, and a food-based business. Just listening to her 2014 album, Food, clearly demonstrates that she's not lost her touch. Her demands and honesty about her life, career, and music since we stepped into a new millennium shows she hasn't wavered on her true outspoken self. Still holding a little punk ethos, but now a woman with age and experience, she remains the presence we have to take notice of whenever she's present. As I always say, I really love the way you unpack these albums and provide so much history, texture, and dimensions to your analysis. This album felt like a solve for those of us who are seeking a more left-of-center R&B sound. I love R&B and the vastness of all the genre has to offer. I think alternative R&B is a loose-fitting label for what Khalees and others were doing with the sound. Clearly, the roots of the genre are here, but the artists are playing with the content, the sound, the influences, and pushing and reshaping what R&B can be. When I first heard this album, I immediately thought of Joy, an incredible alt-R&B artist who has flown under the radar. Kaleidoscope is a really great album that feels exciting to listen to even today, as I did when I first purchased it. The Neptunes were really forward-thinking in their approach to music in general, and R&B specifically. This album almost feels magical. And yeah, Khalees would move on to major pop success with Milkshake and Bossy, but this album was that initial spark, that path forward in the sound of progressive R&B. Like the Brownstone single, I Heard the Grapevine are just some insightful tidbits we came across while doing our research or from distant recollections passed down that we wanted to mention. So, Robin, what you done heard through the grapevine? I done heard that when R. Kelly was the executive producer of the Life soundtrack, Maxwell actually wanted to sing the song Life instead of Fortunate. 
R. Kelly didn't feel Maxwell had the grit the song required, and it went to Casey and JoJo, which was definitely the better choice, especially since Fortunate gave Maxwell a huge hit, and he sounds amazing on it, as I explained in my deep dive. What was Maxwell thinking? No. no. (laughs) This is certainly where fate was right on target with who actually sang what because Fortunate was the perfect song for Maxwell and Life was the perfect song for mm-hmm. Casey and JoJo. I fear Maxwell would have been clowned for that single if he got his way. Oh my <laughs> God. So as this is our last episode of this series, I wanted to bring a little bit in very quickly about who we miss, the people in R&B during this decade that we didn't really get into or mention. So I'm not going to get everyone in here, I'm sure, but I did own Maya's first album that came out in 1998. She was another teen starlet who had the very high school drama music videos and song Moving On with rapper Silk the Shocker, leaning right into that questionable maturity elevation with a line like, whose draws are these? You know, I wear a size four. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay. (laughs) The whole album is so very 90s and a great listen. It also had producers and songwriters like Missy on it as well. She's writing that R&B teen pop of the time. Also, Escape's third album, Traces of My Lipstick, had a great single, Softest Place on Earth. It's low-grade raunch, but it's a really great song that was released in 1998 as well. I mean, and I have to, these last two, I just, I have to, these these are my heart in the decade. These are R&B adjacent or these are Black artists. So Alternative R&B or EDM Funk Collective Jamiroquai created great music all throughout the decade. This is some smooth Mm. stuff. I just recently saw a documentary about Tyler, the Creator and how he was a big fan of Jamiroquai growing up as well. And again, it really fueled his inspiration for being who he was, just being authentically who he is Mm. publicly and as a creator of music. And I really appreciated that. And I also, I I have to shout out, if I said Fiona Apple in this episode, I have to shout out (laughs) Alana Davis. Her father was, I believe, a jazz musician. Father's black, mom's white. But in 1997... She was still more folk rock, but she, it was that first album, Blame It On Me, was the bluesiest, mm-hmm. most soulful album I one, probably have ever heard. It's very Joan Armatrading for the, a newer generation. It's one of my top three albums of the decade. Yes, all these artists you have mentioned, but I also want to just give a shout out to the brand new heavies, Joy, Vertical Hold who I would have loved to talk more extensively about, as well as H-Town, Johnny Gill, and Cut Close. Oh my goodness, yes. There's there's so many. We couldn't have done everything. We couldn't. We tried. And, <laughs> yeah. And this was our look back on 1999 and the conclusion of this series. We want to thank everyone for taking this journey with us and continue to visit rhythmatschoolpodcast.com for our archive of shows, notes, and references for your own independent schooling. You can still email us, the411 at rhythmatschoolpodcast.com if you want to reach out and connect. We are thinking about doing more episodes because we love talking about music so much. There's so much more to explore. And also follow the podcast on Instagram at rhythm underscore and underscore schooled. Again, like, share, please spread the word to anyone who may be interested. 
And be sure to listen to this podcast on Spotify, Apple, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Pandora, iHeartRadio, and now on YouTube at Rhythm School Podcast as well. And to hear curated mixtapes for each episode, find them exclusively on Spotify. I don't know what to say to end this. <laughs> I think that's great. You really said it in, in that part where you're saying thank you. Yeah. And that was, that's like, yeah. Okay.